From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week, coming to you via Zoom. Since the pandemic hit March 2020, we've been coming to you via Zoom. It means most of us are here most of the time. This is Cade Massey hosting this week with my buddies, longtime collaborators, faculty colleagues Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner in here for Q1. Eric Bradlow is going to jump in and join later in the show. Gentlemen, afternoon to you. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do. Show will go up tomorrow morning. We've got a lot of football to talk about when we roll around to Q2, a little bit Q3, and a whole lot in Q4. It's that time of year. We're trying to soak it up last minute, last chance before the long, cold off season. But before we roll into sports, let's talk a little bit of COVID. It feels like we're on the other side of the big break. It feels like things are winding down. I don't want to get complacent, but it does feel different this time. I'm curious where y'all are. I'm curious what's caught your eye in the world of COVID-19. Well, I'm just returning from a short trip to Florida that we love talking about Florida because it's the land of no COVID. Um, It wasn't quite that, I have to say. Um, It's actually quite bifurcated because there's a lot of old people in in Florida and they live in many in quite fear of COVID, yet it's also filled with young people who don't have any sense of uh, that it's around anymore. And it's quite different from um, Philadelphia, from Boston, from New York City, where the young people are still living in somewhat fear is the word I'm going to use, because unlike, say, Shane and I, who've essentially decided, well, we're just going back to our normal way of of process of living, uh, a lot of younger people are not. And a lot of that has to do with a discrepancy over what I would call facts. And this is something that I think- Hold on, before before you go, because you've got an an axe to grind. I can build an axe. You're pulling out an axe. Real quickly, uh, some clarifying terms. Where were you in Florida? I was in Delray Beach, where my mother-in-law lives and my aunt and uncle, uh, who I've mentioned and, and are regular listeners to our show. And remind us where Delray Beach is. Uh, in it's snuggled in between Palm Beach and Boca Raton. It's, uh, it's north of Miami. It's along that stretch. North of Miami. Yeah. And when you say young people, these young people who are living in fear in Philadelphia and New York, you're talking about 20-somethings, 30-somethings, maybe even young 40-somethings. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't venture to say it's a, it's a proportion. I, I don't even, I couldn't do that. But one thing that I notice is that in places like Boston, where I, I visited recently, where my son lives, you see lots of young people wearing masks outside um, in, you know, in, when they're in restaurants and sporting. I think, I think what you mean by young people here is not old, like not so old that you're compromised if you get this thing. I think you mean anybody like less than 60. I think that's what I you mean by you. Do. Probably do. But one way to say that is people younger than me. <laughs> okay. Well, that's another bracket down, but okay. Roughly. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Okay. So now, I, now, what are you going to do with that axle on the table? You've pulled it out. You've laid it down. What's going to happen? One of the things that we've been doing on our show for a long time is try to unpack a lot of information that has been sort of not dribbling out. It's almost like a, a fire hose worth of it, but coming from all around the world. And, you know, Elmacron set in in South Africa, when was it? Early November. Um, it spread to the United Kingdom. It spread to Israel. Later, the United States. It's been all over Europe, Eastern Europe. And a lot of data has come in. And, and, and it's revised a lot about what we know about the virus. And one of the things is that the Omicron variant, for sure, is extremely transmissible among the vaccinated. And that was the, 
major frontier. We knew that Delta was transmissible among the vaccinated, but at least the vaccination, the booster gave you a, a bit of protection, whether that was 30% or 60%, we argued about on our show. We weren't sure. But Omicron, it looks almost nearly identical. There doesn't need to be any evidence at all. Okay, hold on, Adi, Adi, one second. So I've been having this conversation with you guys long enough now to feel like vaccinated isn't a single category, that it's essentially a curve. Your protection, whatever that protection is, is a declining curve. And so it's not enough to know whether someone's vaccinated. You need to know how long ago they were vaccinated, right? Yeah, ori- I, mean, I mean, your original, va- like if you got vaccinated early on and that's all you've done, that is not particularly, your current state is not particularly protected against But Shane, that. even, you know, you've been boosted, but that's been four months ago. So again, you're down the curve a little bit. Boosting, whether that, so the question, there is ambiguity there, but just to throw out, a brief, you know, simple number. If you've been vaccinated and boosted, and that's more than uh, probably three to six weeks, then that doesn't offer much protection against Omicron infection. That is something that the, basically the world has observed that pretty strongly. And it's also corresponds to people's lived experience, particularly out of New York City, where it just ripped through whole apartment buildings of vaccinated people, boosted people. And, and the data is pretty clear that and to and to places with national health services that are able to really track not only uh, infection status but also vaccination status, and the reason so that is something that we pretty much know is true. Um, it does that, that that infection is is vaccination does not prevent infection, but it does prevent serious illness, and it also seems to present and this is some of the new information prevents long COVID. That's a new wonderful study out of Israel that's that's showing um, that vaccination prevents long COVID. So you're just getting cold-like symptoms. Maybe let's, let's stop on that one for a second, because that's worth a little bit more attention. Yes. We've said, yeah, I, I'm, not just as, like almost everybody, you know, we, we had these conversations about COVID and then someone throws in long COVID. It's like, oh, and it's like yeah. this singular thing. Yeah. Some people are especially fearful about it. We, we all, not all, but many people have examples of people in their life who seem to be debilitated by it. And there has, and it's been rare enough that there's not good data on it. And then you came along with this study, I think in the last week or so, we didn't have a chance to talk about it last time, but you had it last time from Israel that says, it sounds like definitively, you know, as definitive as we can be with data so far. Okay, fine. That's what Shane's about to jump in and say, yeah, what kind of crap data are you working with? But the conclusion of this paper was no long COVID among the vaccinated. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I got nothing. I, you know, Adi's obviously going to tell us about the data, and I, I, I have no reason to distrust him. I just part of the challenge of long COVID is it's so nebulously defined. Yeah, yeah. That like you know, I, I feel like it's hard to even bring data bear on it. Like I, hopefully, I, I mean, maybe the starting point for describing this study is exactly what you know, like you know, things like the taste, the, the loss of taste or smell. That's kind of a relatively unambiguous thing, but like you know, the kind of other symptoms like tired, like tiredness and all this type of stuff that have been kind of lumped into this long COVID category. I don't know. Is yeah, that okay. the long COVID we're talking about? They have about nine different symptoms, which are in the pool of long COVID, the basket of symptoms of long COVID. And basically what they did was, which is a, a common design. I mean, you try to do a matching. So they match people who were, who were, who got infected with, with, with COVID-19 were vaccinated and so didn't didn't end up with serious disease of any kind. Um, and they had all kinds of levels and they matched them with people who also had a, a similar like um, uh, flu like virus or a respiratory virus that was definitely they could rule this out with testing, not COVID. 
And then over one to two to three to four months, they tracked them and asked them about their symptoms. And what they did was just show that they were essentially the same in both groups, particularly with fatigue, which is a good symptom because it's very common. Um, after a respiratory virus, people end up reporting fatigue for a considerable amount of time. So they essentially created a tr control group. I'm not going to swear up and down that they did that great. I didn't read it incredibly deeply. I don't think it has yet been, been published um, and gone through the peer review. But they did what you're supposed to do, which is create a control group of people who are, who are negative and did not, did not have COVID and uh, people who did. And they, and they look and they track these nine symptoms. And this is not the first uh, first study of this kind, there's been done a whole bunch of these before, and those have consistently shown um, some, some up, to, uh, up uh, representation of one of these nine symptoms among the, among the COVID sufferers, in particular, the smell and taste, which is non-existent outside of, of uh, shouldn't say non-existent, very, very, very rare outside of COVID and seems to um, linger with people who have had COVID at much more larger percentages, one to 2%, as opposed to essentially one-tenth or one-hundredth of a percent. So this study, with is the, which is the vaccinated group, seems to show no disproportionality, or at least not statistically significant. So they set up this comparison. It's a match pair between somebody who had COVID and somebody who did not have COVID. That's right. Yep. Right. But so this is not, I mean, the way I parsed that original statement that vaccinated people are protected against long COVID it's that the vaccine protect. I mean, oh no! It, it just, wouldn't you want that to show that the vaccine somehow protects against long uh, COVID? No, would so, be a COVID versus of a vaccinated versus unvaccinated matched pair. Right. Did that? I, I do not believe that. Uh, you know what? I should. I should. You know what? I have to say, you've cornered me. I don't have the answer to what to. They might. So, I mean, had, I, you know, I, I mean, like, I think they actually might have had three groups: unvaccinated. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say because I mean, no I, another way of rephrasing that comparison is just. You know, by the way, it's, it's unclear. It's on long It's unclear if there's long COVID. Uh, that, that you know what? I'm gonna right. Absolutely right, because there are people who are saying on on long COVID by itself is something that is a suspiciously um, poorly yeah. data sourced observation. You're you're absolutely correct, and and I stand corrected. And the the the, the data is much more rich than I'm able to present here. But the reason why I bring that up, the, the COVID one, is that is that this is part of the, the array of all kinds of information that's been just dumping on us almost on a daily basis or from around the world. And so we're seeing so a pretty conclusive evidence and from around the world that the Omicron in particular is very infectious and vaccination super, it wears off very fast. The booster vaccination, whether it had offered any protection at all, I'm not even sure. But it's fantastic against long-term illness, serious illness, and the rate of that appears to be about 10 times, which is spectacular. Um, it might even be higher. It might even be 15 or 20 times, particularly in the age group. And that's a very effective. Now, the reason what I'm concerned is, is the CDC. Now, this is our, our, our bete noir of data analysis. The CDC of 99.7% of, of Americans age 65 and over are vaccinated until that number went over 100 and they scratched their head and went, that doesn't seem right. They uh, over the over the weekend, essentially, they dumped out a lot of data and the and a lot of charts have been produced from their data showing that there is five times fold protection from infection due to vaccination. And that is just completely counter to what all the other nations and studies, including our own studies, have shown. And this is going around and it is feeding fuel to this idea that vaccination protects you from infection when it really just doesn't. And it certainly doesn't do that after a short amount of time.
All right. Well, so I, yeah, I mean, I kind of wonder, like, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, my, my opinion about the CDC probably couldn't be lower at this point, yeah, yeah. So, such, such that I'm now in my mind speculating, you know, I mean, uh, assuming you're correct, do you think it's just kind of incomp like incompetence and sort of misinterpretation of this kind of wealth of data? Because that we've certainly seen that along the way, or could it be, again, they are trying to drive, essentially, you know, try and present data slash science in a way that incentivizes people towards something they want them to do anyway. You know, I'm, I, I, that is a speculation. I'm not going to venture in that territory um, because remember we had uh, we had Maisel, uh, Professor Maisel on. She yeah. actually says it's not actually nefarious motives. It's more likely just bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. CDC does two things. It publishes a lot of studies. And in fact, they recently published a study on COVID infections and vaccination that was done at the hospital level. And, and they actually talked about how difficult it was to get the vaccination status of their patients. The other thing that it does is it collects and aggregates a lot of data nationally and it just publishes it. That's where they run into trouble. And they've been consistently running into trouble by taking all these data streams and recognizing that the data streams aren't accurate and they just dump it out anyway. The one so, thing I think the CDC does the, well. The, 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 yeah. The, I mean, if, they, if they're dropping, they must be dumping analysis along with that raw data so so, because the kind of like thing you were talking about is not just raw data that's like there's a there's a couple at least statistics that were calculated and compared there right uh, rates uh rates dumps and i'm actually not even sure that they're doing it i think it's it's wrappers on top of it tableau and other people's analyses so uh, let me ask you about one of these because you took issue on twitter with a graph that eric topol sent out one of our guests eric and and he's really been on the forefront of this thing from the beginning he and you challenged it, but it wasn't infection. It was death rate. And the death rate, we're talking about, you know, um, 100, 100 times maybe difference between uh, vaccination and not vaccination. And they're talking about the number of deaths per 100,000 people if you're unvaccinated from COVID, if you're unvaccinated versus vaccinated. So you just, even though you believe that there is much higher protection, you just can't imagine that it's a factor of whatever this is says a hundred. And that's just not right. I mean, that goes flies in the face of just counting statistics. He was essentially pointing out at point one uh, uh, out of a hundred thousand, which is one in a million. There are many, many vaccinated deaths that happen daily. Hundreds, hundreds are, are, are reported daily. Um, which is a you know approximately a fifth maybe of the total a day, considering about two thirds of the adults are, are are vaccinated, maybe more. That means you're looking at ten times protection. That's great. There's no reason to make something that's ten times a hundred times. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just not right. I mean, it's and by the way, um, and what troubled me about it is that there are lots and lots of other studies that are showing anywhere between five to fifteen to twenty by depending on the age group, but nobody's showing. The hundred and worse, that wasn't even age disaggregated. And one of the things we know, of course, is that the unvaccinated are more likely to be younger and they're more likely right. to, to not yeah, die. Yeah. And so if you don't do the disaggregation, you tend to understate the effect. And that wasn't even done there. This just it just was nuts that the CDC published that because it can't be right. And unfortunately, this is just one more knock against their credibility, which also gives ammunition to critics of essentially science on this whole battle. Yes. I mean, if I had a message to people, it just, we've had, a, I would say, get yourself effing vaccinated. And if you haven't been boosted, get yourself boosted. That's the message. There's nothing else. Everything else is off message. And, that, and that, that's where we've kind of gone, gone haywire. 
Um, you know, if you, and, and you talk to people, I just spoke to one of my neighbors and, and she's concerned about, about unvaccinated people spreading COVID. And I think that's a misplaced concern because your, your vaccinated friends are just as likely to spread for you COVID than your unvaccinated friends. Adi, real quickly, we only have 30 seconds here, but vaccination doesn't appear to provide much benefit after the first few weeks against infection. What about masks? This is a big topic, long topic, but in 15 seconds, what about masks? Uh, you know that uh, I'll give you 15 seconds. If I have to walk into a store, wear a mask. If I have to walk into a, a you know a short encounter with patients, with other people where I'm concerned, in particular, wear a mask. If I really want to be concerned, wear an N95. Have it strapped around your head. If I'm going to spend some considerable time with people indoors, don't bother. Just because right. it's not going to have that longer term. Yeah. All right. There's your heuristic. Adi's giving rolled it down to heuristics. Gets vaccinated. And he's got a mask policy that says, wear it in a store. If you're going to hang out for a while, don't bother. All right, guys, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Cade Massey hosting with this quarter, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Audie Weiner is out and about. He'll be back. In fact, we're hoping he'll be back this show. We are rolling into an open topics segment as we typically do in Q2. You guys can jump in here in a way. You can shout at us on Twitter. Probably the single best way to reach out to us, our handle there at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. We follow all of our guests and we tweet about the world of sports analytics Sometimes about analytics, sometimes about sports, sometimes about sports analytics. You can also hit us up on email. It's a mailbag of sorts. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send. We love hearing from you. Pro or con, ideas, complaints, whatever you got. We love hearing from you. We get as much of that on the air as we can. So drop us an email when you have the chance. Gentlemen, we had a pretty decent football weekend this past weekend. I mean, we could talk about it for the next hour and a half. I'm curious what you think is most worth worthy of talking. What what most caught your eye in all those extraordinary football games? Well, I mean, I think we should defer to Eric really as the person on the scene for one of those dramatic. I, I would say we could probably fill our entire show with any one of those games. Um, so it is kind of tough to pick the five. I've got a few thoughts kind of uh, about ski defensive scheme and stuff like that. But I, Eric's probably got even stronger thoughts about defensive scheme and stuff like that. So, yeah, well, so mid-afternoon Sunday, we were thinking the lead story was going to be Eric having been in Tampa Bay for the Rams Bucks game. And it's, it's a big story, but we didn't know what we had in front of us yet Sunday night. But Eric, with sympathies, with condolences, with admiration for your having made the trip down there. For most of the afternoon, we thought it was just this ugly, painful, feel so sorry for Eric kind of day. And then there were these moments of like, oh, my God. And then there was, oh, my, we do feel sorry for Eric. So what was the experience like? Well, uh, first of all, I think the first game on Sunday, obviously the game I was at, uh, Rams and Bucks, I had a very different feeling than the Chiefs and Bills game. Uh, I really felt the Rams were the better team. If the Rams don't turn the ball over, I think they had at least four turnovers that I can recollect during the game. They win that game probably 37 to 10. 
on the players that were there. In other words, the Bucs had a lot of injuries. I'm saying the players that were there on Sunday, the Rams were the much better team. The Rams don't turn it over three times in the fourth quarter. The Bucs can't get back in the game. Uh, just before the half, uh, the running back fumbled at the one-yard line. It would have been 27-3 to three at the half, not 20-3 to three at the half. And I think the game would have been over. Missed field goal. Yeah, what's your explanation for that? Because you're describing a big disparity between the two teams, but the Bucs were favored. They were home. We've had them top of the power rankings. A lot of others have as well throughout the year. How could it be that the Rams would come in there and be three or four touchdowns better on that given day? Injured offensive line, right? Yeah, that that was the big thing that I noticed was that uh, Tom Brady seemed pressured on every single play. And look, that's been the formula for the New York Giants, who beat them twice in the Super Bowl. Not Eagles had a different formula. Just don't ever punt and score every time. And maybe you'll outrass Brady, who threw for 500 yards and, you know, eight touchdowns, whatever he threw for. Um, You pressure Brady. We've been saying this on the air for the last seven years. That's the only way you beat him. The Rams defensive line was much better than a banged up Buccaneers offensive line. And the Buccaneers' offensive line had been the strength of their team. They, matter of fact, I think you guys saw these stats. Um, they're the only team. I think their starting tack, their starting offensive line up until this previous game had played like ninety nine point eight percent of the snaps together. No injuries. Yeah. That's last year and this year. And I think Same it's five the, guys. And I mean, it's not just. I mean, Brady. I, I think it's not just Brady where you know, relentless pressure plus uh, an injured offensive line is impactful. I mean, we saw this in the Super Bowl. This is what the Bucs did to the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, too, against Mahomes. Mahomes Absolutely. Also, yeah, that's a good Mahomes point. All, I mean, obviously, we, we saw yet more evidence of what Mahomes can do when you don't have relentless pressure and when his line is healthy. And I mean, that's kind of, you know, I think, you know, to a certain extent, Brady, Brady you know, the Bucks luck with offensive line health last you, you year. You bring up a great point, uh, Shane, because yeah. as I remember, I don't remember all their names, but at least two of the starting offensive linemen, I think, for the for the Chiefs were injured. Yeah, that's right. In last year's Super Bowl. Yeah. So I think, again, it shows if you can't protect the quarterback, it doesn't matter whether it's Tom Brady. Now, let me just say, by the way, if it's not Tom Brady playing that game, there's no way the Bucks come back in that game. And you asked me my elastic impression, besides that the Rams were the better team. I actually thought the Bills were the better team against the Chiefs. No, 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 no. Hold on. Don't go. Don't go. No, we want I'm not going to that game one. yet. I'm just going to say, I, that's Harrison. Um, it shows you how the minute the Bucs scored with 42 seconds left, I turned to my cousin and said, you know what? I don't know why, but I just have this feeling. Fournette should have kneeled at the one-yard line. Now, I know it's hard to say that, given it wouldn't have tied the score. And they were down seven. This isn't running out the clock. They were down seven. Maybe you never score. But 42 seconds left and a timeout seemed like eternity to me. And you don't have to get that far. If you kick it off to the 25-yard line, and they have a kicker that can easily hit a 55-yarder, you have to get 30 to 35 yards. And this gets back to Shane's earlier comment, depending on what defense you play, that's not that hard to gain 30 to 35 yards in the center of the field. And so no, certainly, certainly given that they only took 13 seconds to do it the last time for like, like in that, that final game, I right. mean, 42 seconds seems like an eternity now that we have that other game kind of experience, like, you know, behind us as well. But I think, I think what it shows is that, um, you know, when he, re- it, look, when he really needed it, Tom Brady made almost, almost wasn't his fault. 
the second greatest comeback in the history of the playoffs when he had the first one against the Falcons in the yeah. Super Bowl. And it also shows that, you know what? Maybe the Rams were right. Maybe Matthew Stafford was worth all of those picks. Because I'm going to tell you right now, Jared Goff is that quarterback. I have no faith that the Rams would have driven down the field. Stafford looked fantastic in the game. Yeah. He had an almost flawless game. None of the turnovers, let's be clear, none of those turnovers were his. None. So let's talk about that for a moment. What difference do you think experience in the playoffs make? There's certainly a narrative out there that it does, but given that narrative, we would have expected Stafford to be kind of outmatched by the situation in some sense. He certainly has below expectation playoff experience given his experience in the league all those years with the Lions. I think, though, I mean, I think that, I mean, yes, but I think he's got enough veteran, general veteran experience and savvy and just basically kind of, you know, I, I think composure in certain situations in a very specific situation, you know, Jared Goff, the big complaint against him, even back in the day when he was, you know, kind of like leading the Rams to Super Bowl is that, you know, there's certain kind of schemes or defensive ways you could play him that he had a hard time adapting specifically cover zero blitzes like blitzing against Jared Goff was very effective. You know, I mean, the, the Patriots did it. The, the one time he turned it over in the Super Bowl, the Patriots was on a blitz. Yep. You know, uh, and, and, and you know, he, he was kind of like, because I think he doesn't have that kind of, you know, r- rushing your face sort of decision, veteran kind of experience and decision making. Whereas Stafford, that's, he burned that, that cup pass was a blitz. Well, and, matter of fact, Staff- and Stafford Shane, you look, burned him on it. If you look at the stats in the game, Stafford was more effective when the Bucks blitzed him. Yeah. Matter of fact, that was when he was most effective because again, one-on-one coverage. And also at the end of the day, you know, I always say the Bucks defensive line, even last year covered up for what's an average secondary. The yeah. Bucks don't have a great secondary, yeah. you know, Murphy bunting and Dean and you know, these guys, when they're juniors like legit. No, 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 no. Like they're, you know, they're good, but I'm just saying, yeah. when you compare that to the Rams, OBJ, Cooper Cuff, you know, that they had a, a Van Jefferson. They've got an elite wide receiving unit. And I would take them one-on-one all day long. And that's what we saw in the game. So, look, I was disappointed, obviously, because I really felt, I think everybody feels, whoever won the Ram-Buck game would be a strong favorite against the 49ers. By the way, let's remember, though, the 49ers have beaten the Rams twice this year. So I don't know why everyone's saying San Francisco has no chance, including in a game that San Francisco had to win to make the playoffs. And the Rams were playing for the second seed at that time instead of the four seed. Who would have thought the four seed in the NFC would have been the one seed? But again, um, I was disappointed in the game, but I was like, I got to watch the GOAT and I got to watch him come back from a 27 to three deficit with four minutes left in the third quarter. And let me just point out, the Bucks had the ball five times in the fourth quarter. So if I had one criticism of the GOAT is that the Bucks had – the Rams turned it over twice in the fourth quarter. Those weren't the two times the Bucks scored, actually. So I actually – if you look at the, the data from the fourth quarter, if Brady had had a perfect game – he didn't have a perfect game, but if he had a perfect game, they could have been leading yeah. at the end of that game, not just tied. Eric, last last question on the Bucks in particular. What are your thoughts on whether Brady will come back, whether he should come back? I think it's based on one factor and one factor only. Brady is going to be honest, not with himself, because he just threw for 5,000 yards and 40-something touchdowns. He knows he can still play. What he's going to do the math on is 
is this a Super Bowl potentially winning team? And if he answers the question to himself, you know what? Indomitian Sue's getting old. JPP's getting old. There's no Antonio Brown. Maybe Godwin comes back halfway through next season. Maybe he doesn't. You know, we're not maybe as good as we were two years ago. The Bills are getting better. The Chiefs aren't getting worse. If he determines to himself that he's going to have to put in, like everything would have to break the Bucks way for him to win the Super Bowl, I think you don't see him come back. To me, that's the number one determinant. It's the team around him. Can the Bucs keep that Super Bowl winning team around him? Okay, My gut so- says he retires um, mm-hmm. just because I think he'll come to the conclusion that, you know, they had a great two-year run, but that was he maximized that. It was because of him. He made it so that they had a great two-year run. I, I don't see the Bucs as a, as a championship team next season. Two quick thoughts on that. One, well, one. I, I, I feel like I'll, I'll just kind of, unless you want to say something, Kate, about counterpoint to that. Well, I, I just think, I mean, I, I guess I have a different view of the Bucs, at least over the next couple of years. I mean, their core is basically intact. I mean, yes, they're not going to be able to repeat that unprecedented thing where they return like every single, literally every Super single Bowl one. staff. Yep. But I mean, we just finished sort of saying that, like, if not for an injury or two, that out could the outcome in that game could have been dramatically different, you know, and like, you know, so like a healthy line and they've got a few bodies to replace, you know, I know Godwin's a free agent and obviously Antonio Brown's God, but there's, it's not like there's not going to be free agent wide receivers out there. Like yeah, Devontae, there's plenty Adam, of Devontae Adams, for example, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, 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 I mean, the Bucks, I think, I feel like the Bucks as an organization, at least, are aligned with Brady's goal. Like they are all win for it now. And it seems like the extent that they're team building, Brady is very much involved as a consultant slash, like, you know, co- collaborator on and that recruiter team build, and, and, and on that team building. So, I mean, I do agree. I, I agree with your basic premise that his calculation is going to be entirely dependent on whether he feels like they kind of are, are, are going to be at a Super Bowl kind of contending level again next year. I just think he's got a lot. He, he can play a pretty strong role still in making that happen. Um, so I think he probably plays another season. But I mean, I, it, it, you know, he, even if it doesn't, what a way to go out. Oh, my goodness. So I agree with Shane in two respects. One, this idea, I think the question whether they can win is whether they can win a Super Bowl. Not that the expectation is that you're going to win a Super Bowl because no team yeah. should have that expectation, nor is it a requirement for teams that ultimately win Super Bowls. You, you have to have breaks that go in your way. You have to have overperformance and in, in key moments that you can't predict. So the, what you're looking for is, are you, at, I don't know, in expectation, a top, yeah. what, six, eight teams or something like that? I think it's fair to say that if he comes back, the offensive line is healthy. As, as Shane said, you can pick up good wide receivers. I mean, you think of the guys besides Mike Evans and Gronk. You look at the go- other guys that were playing. They're not Hall of Famers. So it's not yeah. like they have to worry about upgrading their other positions. I agree with you on that respect. They're a top. be hard to argue they're not a top eight team in the NFL next year. Okay, so here's the other question, and Shane alluded to it. You're also betting on the organization. There are some organizations where – if you had the same talent around you going through the same, you know, life cycle, 
you might not bet on their ability to fill holes and take advantage of what you have and allocate resources appropriately. I don't know the bucks well enough to say, I, I buy what Shane's saying that they're aligned, but for example, do you bet on the coach and the coaching staff? Do you bet on the GM's ability to play the markets? I, I don't know the answer, but I think that's a, that's the other piece that's really important. Well, you brought up two interesting points and it's, you know, obviously there's a lot of coaching news even going around today and other, you know, a lots of vacancies they may lose both their offensive and defensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. I mean, so if that, ha- if that, you, so you're not talking about just Arians. Arians already said he's going to be back. We know that. Um, but uh, Todd Bowles is certainly a, a strong candidate for other jobs. And um, remind me the offensive Byron coordinator. Leftwich. Leftwich. Leftwich as well. So, you know, uh, Brady might see that. Wow, if I lose, we lose both of them. Yeah. That could be a rebuild. So that oh, could drive right, him away right. too. I just, I, you know, and, I, and Kate, you're exactly right that we don't, I, I mean, obviously I don't really know the Bucks organization or how things are working behind the scenes enough to kind of really be confident in my statement that Brady is kind of, but both is a collaborator and sees himself as a collaborator. But I just kind of contrast that again with a couple kind of very kind of, you know, you know, sort of obviously kind of obvious situations like Green Bay or Seattle, where you have a quarterback that I feel like feels you we've kind of like there's a lot of news reports of the, those guys moving on yeah. Rodgers and Russ because in part they you know don't feel like they necessarily yeah. are being consul- yeah. you, you other- know, as consultants as much on that team building yep. that, you know and nobody certainly Brady Russ Rodgers Sean Payton whoever it's clear a lot of these kind of people that aren't going to stick around for like a rebuild and so you really kind of all yeah. these kind of teams I think if you wrong retain those kind of top end talents like near the near the end of their career um, you have to kind of have that win now mode and you have to demonstrate that to those players if you want to stick around. And- the other thing just quickly is that I did text all you guys right as the game ended and the Bucks lost. I even texted you. It was, it was more like a retrospective. We lost kind of analytics text, but should they have gone for two? And I've, I've come to determine that the answer is no for a couple reasons. Um, let's remember, my, my, my reply, my text reply, was that it? Uh, partly that, uh, <laughs> yes. But it's also the fact that even if they go for two and make it, they don't necessarily win. I mean, it's still 42 seconds left in a time. It's not two seconds left. And with right. probability one, essentially, notice I didn't say 13 seconds left. Yeah. <laughs> with probability one, you win. You don't necessarily win. And then if you miss it, you lose. And if you make it, you, you don't necessarily win, so you just do the math. It's not obvious to go for it again. Uh, with two, But I had this, you know, I mean, you, always, I, you can make this retrospective story. They had all the momentum go for two, not with 42 seconds left in a timeout. Makes no sense. No, I mean, I'll, I'll just, uh, technical note, you don't automatically lose if you miss it because there's 42 seconds left as well. But I know, but yes, your chance, you have to get an onside kick. You still have to score, but you're right. You could you got to add on that probability too. Okay, speaking of all these crazy scenarios, let's stay in the AFC and talk about the game that came on after that one. After, after that extraordinary, I mean, yeah. you know, that game was fabulous. And then this game rolls in. What is left to be said about KC Buffalo? Honestly, that, I mean, they're the, uh, other than maybe, I mean, they're the two best quarterbacks currently in the NFL, I think. They, I mean, both quarterbacks looked yes. absolutely unstoppable. It's kind of interesting that they're both kind of unstoppable in similar way. Like, you know, I mean, like I was like, you know, when I first saw Mahomes kind of bust on the scenes a few years ago, I'm like, this guy is 
such a unicorn. What a unique play style. Nobody's going to be able to replicate that to the degree of success. I think Josh Allen's pretty much as close as you can get, right? I mean, he basically did replicate it. And both of those offenses were absolutely unstoppable, especially in the fourth quarter when the defenses were gassed. And that's what makes, I mean, you know, we don't have to make this the focal point of our conversation, but it does. I, I think the OT rule is particularly cruel in this kind of situation where it's clear that both offenses were essentially unstoppable so that, it, you know, I, I, I did know, I kind of felt with a strong certainty that whatever offense got the ball first in that overtime was going to score a touchdown so, and, and end it. So the one thing I thought about after that game, first of all, I was shocked at what happened in 13 seconds, <laughs> but also I, I don't know why I have this feeling, but if you asked me right now, after what I saw on that game, who I'd rather have, and let's assume they're both roughly the same age. Neither Josh Allen nor Patrick Mahomes is old. Obviously, they're both young quarterbacks. If you ask me who I'd rather have for the next five years, I have to say, after seeing that oh. game, I think it's Josh Allen. Wow, what a great I, question. But let me say why I say that. Something about his, maybe it's, I, I feel like right now, and by the way, I think even Mahomes, as great as he is, has, has had a down year. I think his accuracy has been off this year somewhat. I think his decision making has been off a little bit this year. Um, He's obviously played extraordinarily well when it really mattered. But I will say just maybe it's also a function of, and, and, you know, I know we have a guest coming on from Pro Football Focus. This is what they do, right? They grade plays and they grade players. I, I would think if you graded the game on given how open people were and who threw the ball and how accurate the throws were. I watched Josh Allen and I'm like, this guy's got it all. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's by a margin. If you had to look, I'll take them both. I'll take either. And <laughs> like, I'm just yeah. saying, if you had to have me pick right now, but Shane, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd pick Josh Allen. Uh, I, you know, it's tough. I mean, they, they, again, both look absolutely unstoppable. And again, if you're, if you're like the fan of any other team watching this game, yeah. like, especially in the AFC, you know, unless you maybe if you're maybe if Joe Burrow's your quarterback or Justin Herbert's your quarterback, you're thinking, yeah, I, I, I can compete with these guys over the next couple of years. Any other team like I mean, I honestly Mac Jones looks great. Can Mac, Mac Jones? I mean, no, right. he well, does. He looks you know, great. I mean, the Patriots are going to have to put together an all world defense. Well, you just pointed out something the next few years. A big distinction between Mac Jones and those two guys that I suppose the same can be said about Herbert is the mobility. Mm-hmm. And one of oh, the yeah. things that's interesting to me is how similar the pro game is becoming to what the college game has been for a while, where a quarterback with a running threat, even if it's deeply secondary, is just a huge advantage. No, but and Shane's both, picked both out a, yeah, Shane's picked out a great point here, which is if you're now, you know, let's say you're on the data science or analytics team of one of the AFC teams. Let's even say you're the Patriots, even a playoff team. You've got to be saying to yourself now, we're, our quarterback, just probably, we're not going to be better than Mahomes and Allen, and we're not going to be better than them for a long, long time because these guys are young, and they're, if anything, they may get better. Yeah. So, so we have to play a different style of football. Maybe it's the only way we're going to beat Tom Brady if we are the Giants is to get the most vicious defensive line we can and try to disrupt every play. I think you could see... AFC teams, it wouldn't shock me if you see, well, we can check after the draft if 
pass rushing defense guys who always do well in the draft. I think you could see people reaching in the AFC because they realize if you give time to Mahomes or Allen, you're done. So I, I like your thoughts, Shane. I think you're going to see teams in the AFC rebuild themselves in that way. But I also want to – Just a real quick observation. Allen did not have time in that game. Allen was under duress more snaps than not, it seems to me. He – it was extraordinary to me his ability to deal with all of that duress. They both I mean, were. I think they were. I mean, Mahomes was slipping out of all. I mean, they both were getting substantial pressure. It's just that those two quarterbacks are extremely mobile. As you, I mean, I think their mobility really was the advantage that made it kind of unsolvable. They basically, I mean, obviously, you know, we saw, you know, there's a limit on it. Like, you know, the Super Bowl last year because of, you know, injuries on the offensive line and Tampa Bay had a particularly fierce rush there's a limit on how much they can Mahomes can get out of it. But I mean, they were facing pressure a lot and they were able to kind of slip out of it, do their mobility. But I will say kind of thinking kind of, again, you know, the ACA like 10 years down the five or 10 years down the road, the one thing about, you know, we've obviously seen that uh, that kind of mobility in quarterbacks is hugely advantageous. I don't know if it ages as well. Yeah. Right. As right. you know, what the kind of skill set that Brady in particular, for example, or Rogers brings, you know, because I mean, Good if you point. could have my, if Mahomes and Josh Allen are running over the place for the next 10 years, it's just going to be between those two. I mean, modulo some randomness like for the next 10 years, but you could imagine either of those two careers, you know, starting to kind of change they, they're, if they get injured or if they just sort of slow down team, you know, they're going to have to kind of adapt to that basically. Yeah. So that mobility, I think makes them extra next level difficult to defend now, but not, isn't necessarily going to 10 years down the road is I don't know if they can do that their whole career. What's shocking about, about, I just looked it up while you were speaking, uh, Shane, what's shocking of course about Josh Allen is he's the size of Tom Brady and Ben Roethlisberger. Yeah. He's, he's like six, trucking guys. He's, six, he's like five, Roethlisberger. Yeah. He's, trucking he's like Ro- Roethlisberger. So this guy yeah. is extraordinarily mobile at 6'5", like 240. So I, I no look, again, and so what you're pointing out is, so now what do you do if you're Kansas City and you're Buffalo? You build your offensive line now. So now, I mean, in some sense, yeah. you know, every team is going to have to play to what they're going to have to do. But I agree. Look, you may find, I'll be very interested to see if Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes stay both in the AFC. Like, could you imagine a scenario? Let me just make this up where they're like, wow, you know, I don't want to play against this guy for the next 10 years. I could win more. I got better chance if I go to an NFC team. Do you ever see that happening, Shane, or that's just too far-fetched? I mean, possibly. I mean, aren't they both signed for the like next 10 years, basically? I mean, well, Mahomes signed be... like a 500 million. <laughs> yeah, but Josh Allen also, I think, I Did mean, he? he's another one that's going to, and that's the thing is, you know, I could imagine them starting to look elsewhere. You know, again, we're not going to, we're going to see like, you know, they're still on rookie deals, you know, and like once they're kind of like full 40 million, 45 no, you're million right. a no, year. No, no, he is. In, Josh I'll, Allen, still Josh Allen signed a six year, $258 yeah. million dollar contract. Guys, we got to tap the brakes a little bit on the Mahomes Allen thing yeah. we're doing here because those guys are, yes, fantastic. Yes, probably the two best guys. Great question. Who do you want long term? But they are also the product of the guys they're surrounded by, the system that they're running, the way they're deployed, the development that yeah. those organizations have put into them. And we risk doing what people so often do, which is give the quarterbacks too much credit when things go well and give them too much blame when things don't go well. And let's remember, neither of those two, Shane, by the way, are the MVP this year. That's Aaron Rodgers. Oh, yeah. The MVP curse is in effect. 
Still. No, no, I didn't mean the curse. I just meant, you know, we say, Alan, yeah. we talk about the next five years. If you had to, I mean, right now, you look at Aaron Rodgers' numbers this year, they would have been one of the top 10 yeah. seasons all time by any quarterback. So before we yeah. give them the, the rings. And, and they're yeah. knocked out. They're knocked out of the division at the divisional round. I mean, so it, it, this, this quarterback obsession is typically over. No, no. And I mean, it is a product of the people who got around. I mean, Mahomes also, I mean, you know, Kansas City has you know, probably the second best or best wide receiver in the NFL. I mean, Tyreek Hill is also, you know, I mean, that guy is absolutely unstoppable. So, I mean, like there's a lot of surrounding cast that I think you're right. I mean, we should pump the brakes a little bit on these guys just being unstoppable. But I mean, I, I, I can easily talk myself into a kind of Brady Manning kind of situation where, you know, it's not always going to be them. But, you know, the AFC, you know, for a while there, the AFC went through at least, you know, you had to get through at least one of those guys on the way to a Super Bowl and teams still did it. There was still a lot of Super Bowl, you know, teams that went to the Super Bowl and even won the Super Bowl when those guys were both playing at their peak. But 100 percent, 100 percent, 100 percent. And I agree that it feels inevitable right now. And watching that game, I'm like, even after the game, I mean, if you're during the game, you're thinking, man, I feel sorry for the other 12 AFC teams having to look at these two and thinking yeah. we're not that. And then after the game, you're like, oh, man, I feel sorry for Josh Harris and the Bills thinking I have to go Josh through Allen. Josh, Josh Allen. Allen and the Bills because I got to go through the Chiefs every year. Like that inevitability is such bullshit. Anytime you start feeling in sports right. is inevitable. You should go, oh, I've gone too far. By the way, That's the Chargers, the Chargers with Justin Herbert aren't feeling sorry for themselves. Let me tell you. No, they're not I mean, feeling you know, with I mean, Herbert. They're not feeling sorry. They, obviously, they would probably trade him for Mahomes, but I'm just saying they're not feeling sorry for themselves. Okay, let's jump over. As you mentioned, there was another quarterback in the league this year. Um, you know, a few others, but one in particular, the 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 consensus MVP, who got knocked out, and it raises this interesting question: of Green Bay has had the luxury of two Hall of Fame quarterbacks back to back. It's like 30 years of Hall of Fame quarterbacking which they should get credit for. It's not all chance. There's some chance involved, but it's not yeah, all let's chance. Let's use Bradley's words, Kate, top-tier Hall yeah. of Fame. We're not first talking ballot. about, like, they scraped in. We're talking yeah. about two of the top ten quarterbacks of all time. First okay. ballot Hall of ex- I know they don't do ballots, but, you know, that yeah, top-tier. Yeah, good good phrase. So what's the expected number of Super Bowls? Oh, it's two, just like observed. Two. <laughs> <laughs> what's the expected number? So this is the idea. I don't know exact number of years that from Favre to Rogers their reign. First ballot Hall of Famers, expected number of Super Bowls, fellas. Given the way y'all just talked about quarterbacks, I would think it'd be 10. Well, I mean, uh, take the district uh, overall top tier quarterbacks. What's the distribution of Super Bowl wins? I mean, we got some outliers. It's lower than you think. <laughs> you know, we it's can't lower, use but it's lower than you think. I mean, we could Marino, zero. Yeah. Elway was real close to zero until he caught a couple. Yeah, of Elway snuck in a couple. Peyton. I even, I think, you know, I mean, he's not in the second one. I yeah. would say the following. I would say if I told you right now that in the 30 years, the Packers had won four, you would have said that seems about right. Four or yeah. five seems about right. Two seems, seem, yeah. two seems obviously ridiculously low because, mm-hmm. you know, Eli Manning has two in a, you know, 12, <laughs> in a 14, 15 year yeah. stretch. Well, let's add up the Manning brothers. Or Ben Russell, Man- ben, Big Ben has two. Ben has two. And he played during that era, this kind of, you know, this era of Brady Manning that like I somehow posed as like, the you know, this unstoppable era or whatever. Yeah, actually, yeah. good point. Yeah, Roethlisberger has two in that same period. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. So I would say four or five sounds about right. And follow up question. Is that underperformance, just noise, or are there organizational responsibilities for it? It's so tough. I mean, because I mean, like, so, you know, I mean, obviously the Packers have, I think, underperformed in the playoffs. I mean, you, you know, certainly recently, I mean, they've been, they seemingly are the number two or number one seed essentially, you know, I mean, you know, I don't know when the last time they played a road game yeah. was in the playoffs, yeah. for example, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. So I, I mean, like, you know, and, and especially, I mean, maybe, but I, I wonder if we kind of read extra into like, I mean, I think, I, I think that Lambeau mystique is overblown, certainly during this current generation yes. of Green Bay, that this like, oh, who wants to go to Lambeau and like, you know, in, in, in January, well, it turns out, there's, you know, that's the, that's the most successful way to win a playoff game is go to Lambeau and generate for as a road team. But uh, so I, I don't, I, I mean, I guess I'm not really saying anything of, of concretely here. I do. I mean, I think Rogers, the Rogers era, which I watched more closely, I do think they had, they underperformed a lot of their talent because I think they had underwhelming coaching yeah mccarthy was there for a long stretch right yeah, i mean like you know we're seeing i mean i think dallas is starting to kind of look, look go through this now right i mean another team that i think has kind of underperformed their talent at least on paper the other so, thing i would say is that green bay has had historically has had pretty poor defenses the, the issue this year in that game you, is kate i think i'm pretty confident but you know it's just a if if san francisco doesn't block that punt for a touchdown I don't even see how San Francisco scores seven points no, in that game. The no, score was 10 no. to three green Bay with 10 had plenty of points. They yeah, were, yes. they didn't need more than 10, no it's, more. It was it the only way they could lose that game. Yeah. The only way was that way. Isn't it extraordinary how there are special team effects at the extremes. And I don't, yeah. so this was a really good special teams unit against a really bad special teams unit, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that there could be, a bad special teams unit in the NFL. I don't understand. I need to understand more about that. Matt, can we get a guest on here to explain special teams coaching at the NFL? Because they have a guy dedicated to coaching this. They have an NFL roster and they have a distinctly bad unit. It is fascinating. I mean, I I remember back, I can't remember exactly what year, but the San Diego Chargers kind of like recently during the Philip Rivers kind of years had one year where they were, literally number one in offense and number one in defense in the <laughs> NFL. And they lost in the divisional round due to special, de- like, like it was, again, this somehow the special teams yeah. were bad enough to swamp <laughs> no, the but, number one offense and defense but, in the NFL. But you bring up also, Kate, you know, if we believe what I'm saying is true and we could all see it, there has to be a way that you can create a formation similar to what I saw in the Bills game. There has to be a way that you can kill 13 seconds on the clock. There has to be a way that you cannot get a punt blocked. I'm just not buying it. Like, I'm not saying, like, if suppose you said to yourself, we're willing to accept a 35 yard net punt. Good. It may not be the greatest right. punt, but it'll be right. 35 yards net with very, very low probability of being blocked. You can do it. You should have done it. Okay, and I can say is- the same thing with the Bills. Is, there's got to be a defense you can play that essentially, since they have no timeouts and 13 seconds, forget the squib kick, which they should have done. There's yeah. got to be a way you can play a defense for 13 seconds. So that's why I'm not buying it. It has to be coaching. It has to well, be. I, 
I want to separate. I want I want to keep take that Bills one kind of like I, I want to hold. I I want to put a pin in that for a sec because I I do agree. Like as far as just kind of the execution of like kicking, honestly that that that's not something at the professional level that should be screwed up to that extent. The Bills one I think is fascinating because again thinking about the end of both the Bills Chiefs game as well as the Bucks um, Rams game, I think we saw kind of like. You know, both games had us yelling that, oh, my goodness, the defensive scheme that they ran at the end was so terrible. But it was like they were terrible in like kind of the opposite directions. You know, like the Bucks, probably you were screaming, why didn't they just run like a prevent defense to stop the Rams from getting those big chunks? Yep. You know, why didn't they just run a prevent defense? Buffalo turned around and ran a prevent defense on KC and Mahomes still carved them up. Mm-hmm. It's perhaps yeah. the softest prevent it, but I mean, there's probably within those schemes, there's, there's execution problems as well. And I think certain p- players like Ty Reek Hill and Cooper cup will make any scheme. look but Matt, bad I just want to, you know, This is a really good observation that, that the two games were lost on diametrically opposed defensive strategies that both camps are bitching about. And so yeah. we should have some reconciliation of that. It can't That's- be that easy, you know? That's fair. That's fair. All right, guys, we didn't even make it through the games. we got more NFL to talk about. We're going to step away and take a break. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We're coming to you via Zoom as we do every week now during the pandemic. This is Cade Massey hosting with my longtime collaborators and very good friends, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner in transit somewhere. He's going to be here. He may not be back. He will be back. He'll be back next week for sure. We're in the middle of some football conversation, but Eric's going to, we're going to lose Eric at some point and he's got another topic. You might anticipate what it is. In fact, we got two topics we need to hear from on him before he goes away. Eric, I know you're paying attention to the Australian Open. I know uh, Nadal has made it through another round. Um, I also know the Hall of Fame voting is going to be announced this evening. So let's cover those two topics. What do you, what do you got? Well, let's start with tennis. Um, again, if you had told me six months ago that I was convinced that Djokovic was going to end up with the most majors. But let's now talk about what's happened in the last six months to even a year. So remember, he, he, had one, he had a shot at the calendar Grand Slam last year. He was beaten by Medvedev soundly in straight sets in the U.S. Open. He obviously was not allowed to play because he's unvaccinated at the Australian Open. So now all of a sudden, Nadal, who looks really healthy again, is in the semifinals. He's playing. I watched the other match last night. Actually, when I woke up in the morning, he, he beat. Uh, he's going to play Berrettini, uh, the Italian in the semifinals. I'm not saying Berrettini isn't good. I'm not saying Berrettini can't beat him. He can beat him. He's never beaten him. But Nadal is likely to be in the finals. The matchup that everyone's looking for now is Nadal against Medvedev. Mm -hmm. Now, Nadal, let's pretend Nadal wins that one. It's not hard to pretend. He could win it. But let's say he wins that one. Now, he's at 21. Federer and Djokovic are at 20. Nadal wasn't healthy last year. Nadal's got to be your favorite at the French. And by the way, Unless Djokovic gets vaccinated, he's not allowed into the country of France. They're 100%. They've said it for certainty. So let's imagine now Nadal wins the French. So now all of a sudden, Nadal's at 22. And you start to say to yourself, that's very interesting. So you mean Djokovic needs to win three more at age 35 to catch him? 
And he won't have won any of the last three. Maybe he's out of practice because he hasn't played a lot of tournaments because of his vaccination status. I'd say the chances of Djokovic being top of all time has gone from, I would have guessed, 90 plus percent six months ago to now. If what I think is going to happen, Nadal wins the Australian, Nadal wins the French, I put it at 50-50 now. Now I give Nadal Nadal a legitimate chance to actually end up with the most majors of all time. And it's a shame because it's not because I like Djokovic. He's my least favorite of the big three, (laughs) mostly because of stylistically. Also, anyone that's not chosen to be vaccinated, I have a personal issue with, but that's separate. We're not a politics, politics show. We're a sports and analytics show. But I wouldn't have guessed this, but now I think Nadal has a legitimate chance to end up with the most majors. Eric, remind me, when, how, how much older is Federer, and at what age was he winning the most recent majors that he's won? Great, great question. So let's go with their ages. Federer is currently 40, mm-hmm. Nadal is currently 35, and Djokovic is 34. Jo- Djokovic mm-hmm. is about to turn 35. So mm-hmm. jo- uh, Nadal is about, almost about a year older, and Federer is five years older than that. Federer was, you guys may not remember this, Federer was stuck for five years on 17. 17 Mm -hmm. was Federer's number. Mm -hmm. Federer won three, I'm going to say at age 35 to 37. He hasn't won one since. This is is why I have to give Djokovic credit. You guys know what I'm about to say. At 13-12 in the fifth set at Wimbledon, Mm -hmm. the greatest Wimbledon player of all time, Roger Federer, is serving up 13 to 12, 40-15, he can't convert. Djokovic mm-hmm. comes back and wins the match. Then mm-hmm. Djokovic goes to the French Open last year, that whatever, eight-time consecutive champion or whatever the hell Nadal is, 13-time champion overall. He beats him in the semifinals and beats him pretty badly. Those two matches, to me, change the entire dialogue of who's the greatest ever. But right now, Nadal 35, Djokovic 34. So maybe they have, realistically, because of injuries, maybe they have two or three more years left. Well, that's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm working on understanding the upper limit of the age that's possible these days. And Federer, presumably, is a pretty good example. Federer won his last major at age 37 so far, well, if we so stop will- right now. I just want to note, I mean, that's, this is, you know, a good 12 chances or something for Djokovic and who knows, you know, if someone comes out sufficiently focused. Um, that's, that's some good chances. So I'm, I'm not ready to, to and, I, and it seems I like 50, 50, I said 50, 50, remember Cade, 50, 50, if he doesn't, to play, if he doesn't play this year, if, given his current vaccination status, as we stand right now, obviously a lot can change. He didn't play the Australian, he can't play the French, and he can't play the U.S. Open. So the only one he can play is Wimbledon. So now maybe you're from 12 good chances, or legitimate chances, now you're down to nine. Okay, so now he's got nine. Now you still have, you still have Rafa at the French, who's at least a co-favorite for the next three or four years. So now you just start to say, I could see a scenario where six months ago, I couldn't see any scenario where he didn't end up with the most majors. Well, I'm I'm bummed that for folks like like him and and Kyrie Irving and some of these very high profile athletes who have taken Novak stances that there's so little room for a change in their mind. It doesn't seem once you've taken that high profile a stance. I mean, cognitive dissonance alone is one thing, but the, just the politics of it really diminish the possibility that he would shift his position. Yeah, and, and the other thing I would say is, I mean, that, you know, right, I, again, right. we. we the, the world could change too. I mean, if, if we're really talking about two or three years down the road, this calculation, I mean, the fact that there's vaccine requirements to play at these tournaments, 
Let's not view that as something that's just. I was just covering this calendar right. year. This just you know. this calendar year, Shane. Right. If yeah. it stays the way it yeah. is right that's now, right. that's right. right. That's all I was covering. The yeah. other thing I would say that was, you know, the other thing I would say is, remember, I've always had this theory that old people can play great, but they have a bimodal distribution of performance. We haven't seen it quite <laughs> yet from Djokovic, but we yeah. will soon. And so now you're asking him to win seven matches. And let me just say, the last three or four matches in a major are all matches that even someone that's in the top five in the world can lose. He's not losing in the first, second, or third round. But can he win four consecutive matches when you're sampling from this bimodal distribution? And that's my thing, is that I'm not convinced of that. I'm convinced he's going to win. Look, if you ask me the over-under right now, I would say Djokovic wins... Two, three, three more. He gets to 23. And now I'm just questioning whether Nadal can get to 23. Yeah, What's yeah. Nadal at? 20. They're all at 20. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. They're all at 20. But I, mean, I'm saying- I think Nadal, I, I mean, Nadal was always in my mind, the, the, because, I mean, he basically auto-wins the French. Well, let's see him win three more. Uh, well, yeah. Then he got to 23. Yeah. Well, he's going to age out at some point. I, and I, I don't, we, I, I, his trajectory doesn't seem to be quite as stable. Maybe I'm, this is wrong. This is a layperson yeah. from quite a distance as someone like Federer. No, no. I mean, the other thing is, and we asked Paul Anacone this when we had him on the show a couple of years ago. Here's the thing. If Nadal ever decided just to focus on clay and said, look, I'm too old to get on that grass or the hard courts. Imagine he just focuses on the clay court season every year for the next five. Well, then his chances of winning the French go up even more as if it wasn't high enough already. Eric, there was another story I just kind of got glimpses of, but it's the kind of probability story that usually catches your eye. There was a female tennis player who won a quarterfinals match for the first time in some umpteen years of straight Grand Slams that she's played. Am I remembering that? You are. It's it's Elise Cornet, Elise Cornet of France. She's been playing, I think, every major. I may have this approximately wrong. It's either since 2005 or 2007. I had seven in my mind. All right, 60-something consecutive majors. She had never made the quarterfinals, and now she finally did. And that's a great story. I mean, it's it's a great story. And by the way, she's still alive in the draw. Uh, She's playing today. And I will be rooting for her. I I hope she wins. And you're right. Good point. Kate, the women's side is really exciting because Ash Barty, the number one player in the world, who's also Australian, by the way, just demolished uh, Jess Paguya, 6-2-6 love in the quarters to make the semis. And now a great matchup. I'm really looking forward to this match between Madison Keys and mm-hmm. Ash Barty in the semifinals. And that's a tremendous matchup. And on the other side of the draw, we also have tremendous players. So I, I think it's going to be great. But I think this year Ash Barty wins her home uh, tournament, the Australian Open. It'll be very exciting. All right. Any comments out of the Hall of Fame voting? We've been tracking it for literally weeks, if not months. And the final announcement is made today, I believe. Tonight, it's just, yeah, it, remarkably stable, which is uh, last time we spoke about the Hall of Fame. Let's just remind our viewers, you need 75% of the vote. We, we have some data. We have about 50% of the votes because those are made public. 50%, given it's three, two hours away now, are not public. Typically, public percentages are about 20% higher in favor of, let's say, the Bonds and Clemens of the world than the private. So right now, they're both at 76, 77%. So they're right on the knife edge. They each needed to gain 53 votes of previous voters to get in. Right now, with two hours to go, they're plus three. 
So nowhere close. Mm -hmm. So the reality is they're probably going to be in the low 60s. This is their 10th and last time. The big big surprise right now we're all looking for is, is Big Poppy going to make it? Mm -hmm. He's at around 82%. The public-private could fall right on the knife edge. He's either going to make it by two or three votes or not make it this year by two or three votes. And that'll Mm -hmm. be it. There'll be no other. I mean, there are six people that got in through the Veterans Committee, but that's it. It's Big Poppy or nobody. It's remarkable how stable it's been. We started talking about this four weeks ago, and the percentage of votes, the percentage gain has stayed entirely constant, even though like 60 more votes have come in. They are where they are. Bonds and Clemens will not make it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, I think with, uh, I, I think I agree. David Ortiz is the only kind of, you know, I, I think the, 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 the most interesting one kind of just in terms of it being like much more of a close, you know, like a close call, I think. Um, I mean, you know, obviously it's all, it's going to be for him all about is, does he suffer? Does he have that same kind of su- suffer that same bump down in the kind of private ballots that Bonds and Clemens were kind of really expecting to. And we have data on them experiencing in past years. So, I mean, it's a, it's a more informed, you know, expectation to expect Clemens and, 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 uh, and Bonds come down. And I'm sure the private, you know, Big Poppy's not going to go up in the private ballots. I think we, we can know that. But No, no, no. What, Big Poppy what, won't go up for sure. But, but, but whether, you know, I mean, he already, you know, among the public ballots, clearly he is, got a little bit of a greater fate, you know, like pe- more people are predisposed to vote or vote for him. Does that kind of continue in the private? If he gets slammed to the sort of same extent as Bonds and Clemens in the private, he won't make it at least yeah. this year. It, you know, no, he wouldn't make it at, at all. Um, I think the other thing to think about is what this tells me is that, he, um, look, if this were me, he will make the Hall of Fame. The question then becomes, I think a lot of people are just like, look, I'm going to ding him first time around. He shouldn't be a first ballot Hall of Famer because of the potential, you know, yeah. taint on him from the, you know, the uh, the 2003 test, which wasn't a formal test and his name's on the list. I think enough people will ding him that probably, matter of fact, as you guys know, I'm pretty traditionalist when it comes to the Hall of Fame. I'm OK with Big Poppy making the Hall of Fame. I'd probably be happier if he didn't get in on the first ballot. It has nothing to do with him being a Red Sox. He's a Hall of Famer in my book. He yeah. is a Hall of Famer. But if he told me he got in on the second or third try, I would be 100% good with that. Mm-hmm. And Clemens and Bonds, though, again, um, it's not their performance. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with, I just wish a few years ago, we'll see at 6.01 tonight, I just wish they admitted what they did. And if they admitted what they did, I think they would, five years ago, I think they would have, and it showed some remorse just for lying about it. I think they would have made the Hall of Fame. I really do. Well, yeah, and I mean, oh, sorry. Do people ever get credit? Is second ballot, third ballot, is that a thing? That's not really a thing, right? You're either first ballot or you're not first ballot. Correct. Is it last ballot, yeah, that's, tenth year yeah, ballot, a thing? Yeah. None of those that's, things. No, no. It's your first ballot or you're not. And by the way, I have to run this second, but I, I think you guys saw what I posted. Maybe I sent it to you by text. This is something I was shocked to see. So obviously, by definition, the people that got into the Hall of Fame in 1936 were first ballot Hall of Famer. So it was the first time they had this was Babe Ruth, Honus Wagner, Cy Young, you know, et cetera. So, now, Cy Young actually was 1937. This was Christy Mathewson, Babe Ruth, Honus Wagner, et cetera. 1962, when Jackie Robinson and I forget who the pitcher was, um, Oh, sub 300 win pitcher. I just forgot. I texted it to you guys. Yeah. That was the next time there was a first ballot Hall of Famer. I want to say it again. 
There was no one between 1936 and 1962. And if I started naming to you the Hall of Famers that got in between 36 and 62 who were not first ballot Hall of Famers, how is it possible? So if you say, oh, well, it's, po- it's they said it the way it's the way they set it up this they they a they set up the Hall of Fame, you know, 40 years after baseball, modern baseball started their first round was, you know, these general like, babe, you know, I, the, the way the way it happens is that, you know, you've got legitimate Hall of Famers in the 40s and 50s, but they look they're like, oh, do, how do these guys compare to Babe Ruth? You know, like, you know, when you've got like whatever it is, 12 people in the Hall of Fame and they're Christy Mathewson and like Babe Ruth and Cy Young, well, you're like, oh, well, this, guy, this yeah. guy's got sure this guy's got 300 wins. Cy Young has 500. Yeah. 62, by the way, 62, by the way, by the way, it was Bob Feller. Yeah. Bob yeah. Feller was the other that player. Means, yeah. Sorry. But that's but, a really that's a really nice. Your point is that the standard that is implicitly there by the guys that are already in was never going to be higher than it was in the very first years, especially because they started after they had to go back and get yeah. all the greats from the time before they to, were. Existed. I have to look at that stat again. And let me just apologize to our audience if that's wrong, because I look here's who got into the Hall of Fame in 1955. Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio wasn't a first ballot Hall of Famer. All right. There's a research project for you. I like Shane. We didn't tell Williams go in. Ted Williams went in after that because Williams played until 1960. Williams went in like 66. Williams, I assume he was first ballot. He was. But here's some other guys. Just to just you know, I love these guys. You know, because I study all this stuff. Like, how is Jimmy Fox not a first ballot Hall of Famer? Mel Ott. I mean, these guys were 500 home run. I mean, guys, back in the day, Carl Hubble, Lefty Grove won 300 games. And I, I, mean, and I think I, I think it is really, but I mean, norms for the Hall of Fame in general do slowly evolve over time. And I think this concept of first ballot has obviously in the early years was super skewed by them kind of having this delay between, you know, that like, you know, the fact that they set up the Hall of Fame relatively late compared to a lot of the kind of early greats of, 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 of baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's what's, you know, and I mean, like, it's interesting watching Big Poppy here. I mean, I, I thought, you know, I thought I would have to be arguing with people, not you guys, you guys are really smart, but I thought I would have to be arguing with people uh, about whether or not Big Poppy By the way, I have to Hall run, guys, but let me tell you, I just looked it up. Joe DiMaggio got in his third year, and he got 44% in his first year. Wow. Absurd. Absurd. Just a slap hitter. Why do we need Eric, him? before you go, one question. You're about to go watch your son play squash. What are you going to be looking at to evaluate his performance? What's the equivalent of you say watching a football game that you can watch one series and know which team's going to win? What are you going to watch when you watch your son play in this match? Who's in front of the other guy? The guy, the person that's able to push the other guy to the back and get in front wins that's the typical thing that means the other person's driving the ball better pushing you back you can't hit enough winners from the back you've got to get you got to be in front of the other person that's what i'm looking for all right all right good luck with that we'll talk with you next week okay shane you were just making a point about big Pappy. you thought there'd be more controversy you didn't expect him to go into the first battle Is well, that I, I didn't expect i basically yeah i did not expect his kind of him to start so strongly like i mean in my mind I mean, I'm perfectly fine with David Ortiz being a first ballot Hall of Famer. I'm a little surprised that he's, I mean, that he's, that's an even kind of a possibility. Um, just because, I mean, I mean, and it really it was, in my mind, it was less about kind of like, I thought he would be penalized based on this kind of steroid taint. Cause I, I do think, I, I think it is much, you know, much less on him than some of these other ones like Clemens or Bonds. 
Uh, but, you know, again, I, I mean, you know, throughout his whole career and kind of early retirement, all we could talk about is that he's a DH, mm-hmm. you know, and so like, you know, how are what are the norms for, you know, we don't have well established norms or compare good comparisons for DH is already in the hall. How should we treat this position where there's mm-hmm. not the additional kind of burden on fielding, you know, but also correspondingly amazing fielding performance can't factor in. I mean, like it's just, he's a, he's a, you know, he's, he's a unique position kind of to the hall of fame as well. And I thought he would be dinged more on that, especially Mm -hmm. on the first kind of ballot Mm -hmm. or two. And and maybe that is actually happening, Mm -hmm. but I'm I'm just kind of, I guess I'm surprised to see he's still kind of in contention. Well, you've given us some drama for the announcement this evening. So we'll, we'll watch and see what happens. It sounds like it's going to be a close call there at the end. Listen, man, we have a football guest coming up in the fourth quarter, so we'll talk more detail, but we didn't quite finish up talking about the divisional round in second quarter. I'm curious to hear anything you have to say about, really, we can kind of look forward. And We didn't talk about the Bengals-Titans game. It was it also was dramatic. It yeah. was great fun. any other weekend, we would be. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, the, the, the Bengals might be, they might, I don't know, the Packers outplayed and lost. Um, it's not the Bills might have outplayed. Maybe everybody outplayed and lost because I think the Titans probably outplayed the Bengals as well. But I guess the biggest question I have, especially coming after that performance on Sunday night, what chances do you give any team from the NFC to beat the Chiefs? I mean, the Chiefs, you know, there's no, they're probably 70 30 according to the markets right now to get through. Um, how how do you feel about the matchup? I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean it it's, it's interesting to me because both the NFC championship and the AFC championship both have, I think, in everybody's mind, clear favorites. Yeah, in both. Yes. But the underdogs. So just, to be, just to be clear, the Chiefs are seven point favorites. The Rams are like three and a half point favorites. They're both home. Right. But the Chiefs and, you know, the Chiefs lost to the Bengals already in the regular season. The Rams yeah. lost twice to the 49ers. So, I mean, the yeah, quote yeah. unquote clear favorites are 0 3, at least in the regular season, against yeah. these underdogs. Does that have any bearing or much? Well, how much bearing does that have? How much is that suggestive that, like, you know, Cincinnati mix, matches up particularly well against Kansas City? I don't know. I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess you can talk yourself into somehow the Bengals beating the Chiefs, but I mean, I, mean, yeah, I, say, I, I, I won't say it's probable. <laughs> the, so yeah, the, yeah. The, the, again, seven point line, 70% chance or so. Um, but I think we are guilty of watching the kind of performance we saw Sunday night mm-hmm. and thinking, you know, okay, we saw them at their best. They're probably not going to execute at quite that level going forward. And so it's probably not as inevitable mm-hmm. as we feel. I mean, you run all the numbers. I ran Sims using power rankings from three different systems, Massey Peabody, FPI. Those are both kind of top-down kissing cousin systems. PFF, bottom-up, very different system. They all give pretty rough, roughly similar numbers out of the unabated Sim. And, you know, it ends up making the Chiefs like a 38% chance to win the Super Bowl. And yeah. that doesn't fit with our intuition after watching them on Sunday. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I will just sort of say, I will say both the Bengals, you know, both the Bengals and the 49ers, the underdogs did get through in at least some part due to mis- the mistakes made That's by right. their opponents. I mean, right. you know, Tannehill threw three interceptions. 
Um, you know, obviously we've already talked about Green Bay's kind of special teams mistakes and, and Rodgers just didn't have a good game. So kind of expecting that to happen again when going up against Mahomes or going up against Stafford, you know, I mean, although I, I guess the Rams did make a lot of mistakes and stuff. I don't even know. But like, regardless, it, you know, the Bengals basically would have to play essentially a mistake free game and sort of hope that the Chiefs don't in some way. And that mm-hmm. certainly can happen. But honestly, that seven points, that sounds like about the right spread to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so if you want a heuristic for how these things stack stack up for the Super Bowl probabilities across the four teams, blending three different power ranking systems, the probabilities come out to be roughly as a heuristic, 40-30-20-10. 40-30-20-10. Chiefs, Rams, Niners, Bengals. So if you just want to kind of fix your mind going into yeah. the conference playoff weekend, Shane, just in the last minute or two of this quarter, any thoughts on the overtime debate? Let's not debate the merit of change let's say conditional on making a change is there a favorite suggestion yeah. you have no i don't really like it as currently is but i don't have a the, the reason I, I i'm not as strong in my assertion that it should be changed is i don't have a good alternative because mm-hmm. you know i mean I, I i understand the college one of at least giving to you know i mean I, I i would be open to the least giving like you know always the other team a chance to answer it's just that, I mean, again, you know, thinking of that KC Chiefs scenario, both these defenses are gassed. At some point, it actually becomes kind of unhealthy for, you, you know, to force players that are clearly absolutely exhausted to just keep, you know, because, I mean, the college one where you always allow them to answer, we've seen college games, so that just goes on for like eight more drives or something. <laughs> and it's super exciting as a fan. I would have loved to see Allen and Mahomes dueled out for another like six or eight drives. But at some point it, be, it, it does become, I think a bad idea just in terms of player safety or something. So I don't know I, if there was some way of giving, you know, the, 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 both teams a chance at possession, but kind of still truncating it where it doesn't go too long, kind of guaranteed to not go too long. I just have, I don't know what that proposal would look like. I, your discussion really makes me wonder how you might operationalize the the change in play over the course of a game because of tiredness and and especially defensive tiredness because yeah. it did feel like on the one hand it felt like you know beginning with the Bills long pass they they had to air it out they were down two scores and all of a sudden they have to air it out before that both teams were playing pretty conservatively but then later in the game it really felt like just variance goes up as the defensive teams just can't quite execute the same. And given all that we have analytically these days, we ought to be able to show that change over the course of the game, especially as a function of the number of plays, these defenses for a long time were out there on the field for like 12, 14, 15, 16 play drives, which is really something. I mean, I always, I always think back as one example is is that uh, Atlanta's new England Super Bowl. Where, I mean, that's really what drove that comeback. There was mistakes and all that type of stuff. But what drove that comeback is Atlanta, you know, that defense just got gassed in the second half. And one uh-huh. of the reasons Brady was unstoppable is, you know, I mean, he's great, but like it was that defense was just absolutely gassed. We need to see, we need to see that analysis. We need to see how like play success or drive expected points per drive changes over the course of the game. And I know other things are moving around. It's not perfect. But just that, that would be interesting, especially as a function of 
exertion previously, something that is tied to the mechanism you're suggesting here. That would be that would be interesting to see. All right. So we'll talk over time, I'm sure, because the world's not going to stop overtiming um, or talking over time in the future. We'll have we'll have more chances. That's about it for three quarters. We still have a fourth quarter. We have a terrific guest on football coming up. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter, our traditional guest segment, at least in the time of pandemic. It has become our guest segment. Delighted this week to welcome Seth Galena to the show. Seth is a senior football analyst at Pro Football Focus. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Seth, at PFF underscore Seth. He is only the latest of many PFF guests we've had over the years. We're a big fan of what those guys do, and uh, we're lucky to talk with them periodically. Seth also co-hosts a podcast, Too High, the Too High podcast. You can follow him there, see what he's up to. We're going to hear about some of that that this afternoon. But Seth, first, welcome to the show. Delighted to have you. Uh, I'd like to point out that I am recently a, uh, the new owner of a TikTok account. So, <laughs> oh wow! Right. I, I can't believe I, 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 that's the first time I've ever said that out loud, and it didn't feel very good to tell you the truth. No, but uh, right. that's the correct. I have a TikTok account. I will be doing NFL-related dances. Uh, so, <laughs> if you're listening to that, no, I'm just going to post some football. I was videos going to wonder if you're kind of showing, you know, you, you're, you're grading these guys on each individual play. Is the TikTok just going to be kind of showing showing Tyreek how it's really done or something like that? Yeah, well, if the NFL players are going to be grading me. That's the that's the difference. <laughs> you know, what? Nice I, I don't know uh, t- um, the appeal of TikTok, but billions of people can't be wrong. So, uh, you know, I hope it's a good move. Yes, they can. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> time and time again we're seeing that billions of people can be wrong actually in fact seth what's the what's the uh, what's the account what's the handle on tiktok uh, i think it's uh, pff underscore seth yeah same as okay. my twitter good 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 well listen man if you we, we're here for your reps you want more reps saying that you want more reps pimping in tiktok we're <laughs> we're here for you seth listen man tell us about how long you've been at pff how you got there um, where you where you are working? Are you are you with those guys in Cincinnati? Are you one of the distributed workers? Give us a little bit of your background. So I started at PFF in the off season of the, the first pandemic, the first pandemic, uh, the the early stages of the of this pandemic, right? Um, so like twenty twenty off season, and you know, I've been working remotely, so I'm not in Cincinnati. I do go to Cincinnati quite a bit, um, but I do live in my beautiful hometown of Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Oh, man. And... Really? Does Shane know that? Yeah. Shane oh, yeah. Cool. Awesome. I, I went to college there, so Montreal is my favorite city as well. Oh, which? Yeah. which McGill. Where did... Okay, yeah. Yeah, I was McGill, I was McGill uh, 93 to 97 or so. Oh, okay. A little, little, uh, little uh, before my time, but uh, yeah, I'm a Concordia guy, uh, so we're, we're rivals. We can't talk anymore on the podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, I coached football here for a long time at the um, at the college level. Uh, usually, I, I don't get into the specifics of the Quebec education system, but since Shane is here. I can say that I coached CJEP football, which he may know what CJEP is. Yeah. Uh, and then I coached uh, the Concordia Stingers for a year at university football, uh, mostly on offense, mostly with quarterbacks, though I have some uh, experience at the other uh, positions. And uh, while I was doing that, um, 
I don't know uh, what your listener base is, but um, <laughs> people will know that coaching football at those levels, not very lucrative. Uh, <laughs> so doing a lot of freelance writing work, um, writing about football, writing about, I started just writing about my two favorite teams, which is the LSU Tigers and the New Orleans Saints. And then, and then, um, oh, and then right. PFFs. French Canadian, French Cajun connection is is that is that stretching it or is that there? It's it's it could be like you're not there's I'm sure there are like people like that um, but mine was just my dad got a job at Tulane actually uh, my dad's from here my parents are from here got a job at Tulane and um, and then I happened to be born there and then they moved back to um, to Man. to the the cold wilderness cold uh, okay the cold tundra here lsu man that's a real uh that's a nice choice if you want like the intense college football experience a little bit of roller coaster a little drama Mm -hmm. maybe some corruption thrown in because it is college football that's really well done yeah that's my goal for being a fan of whatever team i am is just the corruption aspect the more (laughs) corruption the more hey the saints want to get in bed with the catholic church i'm a fan like let's go let's let's do it Listen, uh, I should be a Tulane one, one fan, though. One of those weird pro—so you know, kind of a pro Bounty Gate take. That's a, the, uh, not, yeah, not a popular yeah. opinion, but definitely an unconventional one. Right, right. Uh, yeah, not popular, but uh, but I'm pro Bounty Gate. That's for sure. Well, Seth, real quick. Um, this afternoon, Sean Payton announces he's not coming back. So, as a pro football follower and as a Saints fan, what do you think? I, I think you could tell that this season was taking a toll on him. Uh, having to really having to really work at it on offense and not just you know hit, have that connection with Drew Brees there for all those years and and it seems like he just and he he's just done with it you know and I think I think there's a chance that he that he comes back I don't know if that'll be with the Saints I don't know if that'll be with that'll be next year I just think it seems like uh, he was tired. You know, he's been in the league for a long time. Been a head coach for 16 years with the Saints. Like that's a long time. And obviously, it's not the same anymore. Um, they're winning on defense. Um, they've had one of the best defense in the league the past few years. And without Breeze, it, it's been a lot harder. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm not even I'm I'm shocked and not shocked at the same time because we hear these rumors every season, and they're you know where there's smoke, there's fire type of thing. And uh-huh. it kind of kind of finally happened. Where do you put Peyton among the 32 coaches? If you had to rank him. Just, just where would you slot him in roughly right now? You know, it's weird because it's always hard to like separate him and Drew Brees or separate any any play offensive play caller and a quarterback, right? It's always going to be tough. And especially, like I said, the defense has been lights out for the past, uh, let's say, since, 20, since 2017 when the Saints kind of res- they had their resurgence and made the playoffs and won the division four straight times. So, you know, it's always tough, but like, he was, you know, an early proponent of like going to, going for it on fourth down. Um, with that said, I think that just had a lot to do with he had a great quarterback, and he said, "Why, why would I take my great quarterback off the field?" Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, you know, I, I I love him as a Saints fan. Uh, I just think it's always tough to, and I say this as a football coach, but I, I do think it's always tough to separate the offensive play caller from the um, from the quarterback. I think his scheme. I don't know how much his scheme works with anyone else but Drew Brees. And we'll never kind of know, right? We have one year of them not being together. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas you look at a guy like Shanahan and McVay or those people, and it's like it seems clear that their scheme can work without um, great quarterbacks. Now, he did have, like, Kerry Collins. We're talking, like, 20 years ago. Um, and, and you know, the, kind of a middle career Drew, uh, Drew Bledsoe with the Cowboys. But, uh, you know, uh, it, it's tough to separate those two. 
Well, Seth, let's talk a little bit about uh, your role within PFF and um, what you're trying to do in the football world. Can you talk about your Too High podcast and what you're doing with PFF? Yeah, so I think, you know, PFF is fun because I obviously it's like an analytics company, quote unquote. But I think what they've done is try to branch out in the different uh, areas of football. So you do have, um, you know, if you just look at the podcast that we have on our network, you have, you know, certainly a fantasy football podcast. That is like a certain type of uh, uh, aspect of football that people care about. And then you have like the NFL podcast, kind of general football stuff. And then you have the, the PFF forecast, which I assume there's a lot of listener carryover between between this and, and, and the PFF forecast, you know, the quote unquote analytics. And then you have the draft podcast with the tailgate, and we have a new draft podcast with Trevor Sycamore. So with, for me, it was with my with my friend Deontay Lee, who also works for PFF. We kind of handle, we kind of take on the strategic, schematic type of decision making and, and and those type of things. And the reason why the podcast is called Too High, um, not T O O uh, T W O, is because. Um, you know, it's a defensive structure, right? Two high safeties. Uh, so we just kind of talk about talk about football through that lens, um, mm-hmm. given that um, given that you know me and Deontay both are former uh, former football coaches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I mean I, that dovetails a lot with kind of uh, something that we obviously we're talking in in light of this past weekend about defensive scheming, end of game defensive scheming a lot, and I I, I thought it was like. It was a really interesting contrast on Sunday where both games obviously ended in essentially kind of defensive breakdowns right at the last sort of on the last drives. Um, and, you know, but for very, very di- in very different ways. Right. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, it's it sort of showed that how difficult scheming can be, especially, I guess, with the lead offenses, because, you know, I mean, you know, the Bucks fans were kind of screaming, you know, that, oh, my goodness, why didn't we do some kind of prevent defense? And that that's exactly what the Bills tried to do against Kansas City and had, you know, obviously no success with it either. So can you kind of speak to that kind of contrast? Re- reconcile this for us, Seth. We yeah. stumbled into this on a previous segment this this week. This shame where, where everyone's bitching about doing exactly what the other team did and blew the game. So how can we reconcile what were the right way? I mean, it's so hard to say after the fact. And that's, so it's, I retract. That's not the right way to ask if you could have, if you could tweak, go back and tweak what the yeah. Bucks did in that moment and how the Bills played those two downs, what do you suggest? The first thing with the Bucks is so they blitzed Stafford. I mean, they blitzed everyone and end up playing with no no deep safety. So we go from two high to one high to zero high, mm-hmm. um, and the, he hits Cooper Cup uh, over the top. Stafford has been lights out against the Blitz this year. Now, I think this is a very special circumstance, so I don't want to be like, every Blitz up to this point, he's been great. This is so different. Mm-hmm. My thing was, they weren't really set. You know, both Blitzers were coming from, from sorry, yeah, both Blitzers were coming from deep. Even Shaq Barrett, the defensive end, was four yards off the ball. He was not set, ready for play, because, you know, they were trying to, the yeah. Rams were trying to hurry up and go. I think if you want to blitz a guy late in this type of scenario, I think you've got to show them that you are blitzing and tell them you better throw the ball fast. And then you say, hey, if they want to throw the ball on a five-yard route and Cooper Cup breaks a tackle and runs 70 yards for a touchdown, congratulations. You know, in, in a Minneapolis type of miracle type of situation, it's a miracle, it happens. But if you're going to blitz from depth... <laughs> 
you got to live with the consequences. And, and that's exactly what happened, especially against a guy like Stafford, who's going to throw the ball down the field. He's not going to, he's not going to wince away and take a sack. He is going to take that ball down the field. You knew you were getting a vertical route based on what the Rams like to do. They ran their quote unquote dagger concept, which has cup running that vertical right, right down the middle of the field. And that's a good matchup. They like because they get the blitz they get the, him matched up versus a young safety. And they win the game. You know, obviously the throw is great. Um, the catch is great. You know, everything is great about it. You know, he's throwing under pressure. But I still probably would have played, you know, quote unquote coverage in that, in that, on that play, just because I think there was it was too chaotic. Again, if you want to line up, show them the, those looks, those like those like blitz heavy looks, like we saw the Dolphins do this season, and force them to throw the ball fast and hot. No problem. I think this was the the wrong choice. And then the flip side is is what I would have done if I was Buffalo, which was I get that they wanted to play coverage and, and play zone. I think that's fair. I think you could have lived in a world where instead of rushing four, you rush three. Mm-hmm. And then you would have had a player there right where he throws the ball in a zone look, right where he throws the ball to Travis Kelsey on the, on the second play. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think you mind... Patrick Mahomes against a three-man rush, scrambling and trying to keep the play alive and running clock down, and then right. and then letting him, letting him heave a ball up there, and you and again if they make a contested catch and put themselves in field goal range that way, then it is what it is. But um, but I think that's that's a little more second guessing. Like I think the Bucks thing was pretty bad. Okay. Uh, this one was man like. This, this was tough. This was, you know, as we saw after the game, uh, Kelsey and Mahomes communicating at that level that they've, that kind of, I mean, it's not telepathic because it was literally verbal, but you know that 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 yeah. that level of communication that they have. Um, usually, it's telepathic when they when the play starts, but um, this one was just him saying, "Yeah, I'm, I'm going to run into space," and and they found that space. And so, I, I mean, real, I, I get... real, real quick follow up on that, Seth. Talk to us about how difficult it is to be that last line of defense and to have in mind, I don't want them to get behind me. And yet, I also would rather them not have an easy 25 yard pass right here in front of me. Like, as a, as a guy who has coached the players, how hard is it to find that exact sweet spot? I mean, you got to, to some extent, have a course strategy, right? I mean, how fine can you be? I know there's two extremes right on the line, press coverage, all that stuff. And then all the way to the back, but could you imagine giving them a defense or a mindset that says, yeah, we don't want it behind you, but also we don't want to just give them 30 yards at a chunk. Well, it's funny because like, you know, you look at Dallas last week and we went crazy over that play call where they gave the 49ers gave them all sorts of yards. And honestly, there was, I don't know, 14 seconds when Dak snaps the football without any timeouts left. If there's 16 seconds left, it's the, it's the, the, the 49ers are still probably running the same defense with 16 seconds left. The, four, the, the Cowboys call the play, they get, and, they, and they get a shot at the end zone because they're able to spike the football with a second left. So like, it is funny how like, it's pretty much the same scenario. It um, doesn't work out for, for Dallas, and it does work out for, um, uh, for, for the Chiefs. You know, those late-game situations, this is such a, an obvious take here, but they need to be practiced. Like and, and I don't and I don't know if there's like a and, and I do agree that it's got to be like a it's always tough to get into the details of that stuff because these plays you might not you might go a whole season without 
seeing these plays. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, um, and the good coaches will spend their Saturdays, you know, if it's a Sunday game, they'll spend their Saturdays or their Fridays um, running these situations. And I think especially in the NFL um, where, you know, this is college football where you have a lot of blowouts and the good teams win by a lot of points every week. Uh, the, the, you are getting close games in the NFL. Even if you're the Kansas City Chiefs who have been to four straight now AFC Championship games, you're getting right. close games. You right. need to be prepared for all those, all those, uh, all those scenarios. Yeah, and I will say, kind of, I think a, a, a kind of a, a, a unifying theme of your kind of advice or kind of like your evaluation of both of those, you know, scenarios is kind of like essentially like committing to executing, committing to the actual scheme that you've decided upon and executing it. I mean, in, in the case of, you pointed out in the case of the Bucks, if they decide blitz is what they want to do, do an actual, you know, commit really to that blitz and make sure it's an actual, like not off the line kind of blitz. You know, if the Bills want to do prevent defense, commit to that, but actually execute it, execute it to a better degree than what they were doing. Though I agree, you know, with Tyreek Hill and Kelsey, it's, you know, even a well-executed prevent defense can you know, okay, that could have happened anyway. Yeah, it's also just the like these plays don't happen very often. Most plays end like the Cowboys game ends, where <laughs> right, like, and and most games don't end like I said the Minneapolis miracle where you're playing the perfect defense for exactly what Minnesota called against the Saints in 2017, mm-hmm. and the guy breaks the tackle, uh, the flukiest play of all time, mm-hmm. and and ruins the, my whole off season. But like, you know what I mean? Like that's that doesn't happen very often. Um, so, like, we, I, I do think we can't second guess them. And, like I said, I, I definitely not really feeling um, Todd Bowles and the Bucks um, strategy at the end. I, I think with the with the Bills, it's like we're nitpicking a bit more there. But, but, but no, I, I, I do agree. I think they should play with, play with a three man rush and just drop a bunch of people in zone. Seth, uh, we, we, we risk not dropping into some of the players left in the season and some of the offenses and defenses, but I want to ask you one general question because it's been a little while since we've had a, quote, film guy or a coach on the show. Where do you think we are in, in dialogue between the analyst and the film guys? And more pointedly, what do you think the analytics community is missing right now? What are the biggest blind spots? What are the frontiers that the analytics community needs to be pushing to make more of a contribution to folks who aren't in the analytics well that's a good question i think you guys have to police your tone better i'm kidding i'm kidding (laughs) Uh, uh, i'm a policing but we can work on it (laughs) i uh no i I think i think we're getting to a place where it's going to be hard to move forward kind of wherever you are but like especially in football if if you're not attuned to the numbers quote unquote and i don't you know i'm not a, I, I i can barely do two plus two but uh i understand <laughs> if i if someone can explain something to me and i get it and i understand if someone's smarter than me then i'll i can implement that stuff i think obviously one of the things that pff does does is, um that a lot a lot of people can't do um especially if you're not team related or, or with pff is just the ability to have that granular data that I think a lot of people can't can't use, so mm-hmm. that's always fun for me to play around with that data when I have the um, mm-hmm. um, and not just the player grades, but just the player actions on each play. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like that that to me is super fun to play around with. So I think mm-hmm. 
you know, as much as I am a film guy and a, and a, and a coach, it's like, you know, I understand that um, the importance of analytics. I'm, I'm freaking, I work for PFF, so like I, I don't think I have a choice there. <laughs> You're stuck with those guys. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, no, I, I just think you have no choice but to look at the game like that. And I've always said like uh, analytics is such a bad term that's become demonized in a sense where I'm always just like, what is the difference between an analytic and a stat? Like, what is what is a passer rating if it's not an analytic? Mm-hmm. It's not a good stat, mm-hmm. but it's still, like, the same thing. We're just trying to get further and further and further, and I think people keep making strides with that. So I, I, I try not to get left in the dust with that type of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, because I don't think that would be, I don't think that'd be good for my own analysis and, and that type of thing. So even, you know, coaching football or, or being, you know, uh, an NFL and college football analyst. So I, I, I'm, I'm totally on board with this stuff. Um, like I said, I let the, I'll let the smart people, uh, tell me what's good and then I'll try and figure it out through my lens. Right. And, um, and hopefully, hopefully that's the right decision. Well, hopefully it's not just a you consume it and go figure it out, but that you that there's a dialogue there. And as a result, the analytics community can learn how to use different language or think about it differently or revise their models. Adi's trying to jump in here, though. You've inspired something from him. You did, because your your discussion about what's an analytic, I mean, or a statistic, it's interesting because a statistic could be something as simple as just an average and or accounting stat. But when we think of statistics as statisticians, we t- think about the subject of, uh, of statistics, inferential statistics in particular. And basically, when I'm talk- discussing it, it is, it's something much more substantive. It's an analysis that goes by- behind those stats that explains why you want to use it. Um, so, and so that leads me to this, you know, this idea about be- playing Moneyball. Um, it's not just everybody's always been using numbers. That's, I mean, that's not, that's not Moneyball. Uh, what's Moneyball is using numbers to uncover something that you couldn't see um, without numbers, and that typically revolves something that's a little bit deeper. So what PFF does is it it does things that you just can't see just by looking at the ordinary standard counting stats that have been talked about for a long time, and that leads to to sometimes to decisions that people don't want to make on the field, right? Because it's contrary to what they've always done. And, and I think uh, it also, you know, I, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but I think it also offers insight because I think you guys give the mechanism to kind of move us a little bit away from, because, you know, in the numbers and the outcome, there's so much bias in the kind of realizations of the outcome and to kind of get a little bit closer to the process and what actually happened in a play away from the ball, for example, or, you know, to be able to kind of deconvolve that, like, Oh, this, this particular pass was, was a turnover worthy play but was just dropped by the defensive back that the quarterback shouldn't just that that should that just, that still exists on the quarterback's resume. It's a great example of something the PFF does really well. I mean, it's some it's like PFF is, is is creating accounting stat that is counting as analytics, but it's really just a guy watching a film saying that was a turnover worthy pass, yeah. and we're going to count them up, and then we're going to divide them by attempts, and now we've got analytics. It's yeah. a little bit funny that way. Seth, listen, we're going to lose you in just a minute, unfortunately, because of a hard stop. I can tell you now we're going to want you back, but make us smarter for this weekend. Give us, and I'm sorry to do it to you in a short period of time, but give us one quick storyline in each game. What's something that we, that you're interested in, that you're interested in watching to see maybe some way Cincinnati can get it done, or maybe the Niners are going to upset the, or the Rams or the Rams somehow going to stay on top. I think if the four of us 
played offensive line for the Bengals, we would have a better chance of blocking the Kansas City Chiefs defensive line. So that would be my first thing. If we can all get to Arrowhead for Sunday, that might help them. (laughs) Do we want to, though? I mean, I don't want KC to win, but do I want to badly enough to actually stop them myself? I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I think that that to me – so it's funny because I think that if if they're going to have issues in the secondary Kansas City, then Burrow can take advantage of that, even though that offensive line is – it's it's terrible. I mean, I don't know what to say. It's terrible, but he can get balls off quickly. The in the way that because of the way that Kansas City wants to play and give single coverage on the outside, he can just say, "Hey, screw it, let me throw it to my guy down there." Um, as they say, Jamar Chase open down there somewhere. So yeah, I think yeah, that right. would be that would be interesting. Great, great. What about the NFC? Uh, in the NFC, I I would just like I I just can't believe the 49ers who have beaten. Shanahan has beaten Sean McVay like six straight times, I believe, including that um, that comeback win in Week 18. It can't happen again, right? Like I, I right? Like I can't. Like the, the the Rams have a better roster. That's it. Like the Rams have a better roster, and therefore they're going to win. Um, and um, yeah, that's it. Uh, analysis of that game is like, you know, the the 49ers have this issue where they don't have grid corners. They don't play a lot of man coverage. Bottom third in the league, bottom, bottom quarter in the league in man coverage. Uh, th- since week 12, I think only 14% of their snaps have been in, in man coverage. Zone against Cooper Cup can be a problem. Zone against Sean McVay's scheme and uh, uh, Matt Stafford uh, throwing the football can be a problem. Okay, good fun. Thanks, man. We'll be a little bit smarter uh, this weekend watching those games. Seth, appreciate you being here. Appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Wish you the best with the work that you're doing over at PFF. Thank you, guys. That was Seth Galina, Senior Football Analyst at Pro Football Focus. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Seth. You can find him on the Too High podcast, and you can find him on his new TikTok account also at PFF underscore Seth. That has been another Wharton Moneyball, another two hours of sports analytics. We do it here every week for the whole team. Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, been in here with me on the fourth quarter. Eric Bradlow in absentia for our boss man, Matty Datz, for the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate the work, Dion. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us between now and then. Enjoy your sports. <laughs>